Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we read 1 Samuel 16, 1-13, and Psalm 51, 10-14, the story of David's anointing and David's prayer of contrition. We talk about the odd mixture of the religious and the political that permeates both this text and our own lives. Ponder the claim that God looks on the human heart rather than the outer appearance and wonder exactly what kind of heart God might be looking for. And we wrestle with the fact that in this text, God uses a religious ceremony to distract the people from what God is really doing in anointing David. What does that mean for the way we practice religion today? Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am doing all right. <laughs> I am keeping on trucking. Tr- keeping on trucking. I like it. Can you say keeping keeping on? Sure you can. That's keeping what I'm doing. Keeping on trucking. Yeah. I, I don't know How why this you? reminds me of that, but my daughter has started to a preschool, which is like 30 minute drive from my house. And so- It's a long drive. It's a long drive. So the way we entertain ourselves is I make things talk. And so she, she like now has a relationship with all the streets and the, the street will be like- Hi, Anna Kate. Oh. I'm Chanel Parkway. <laughs> She's like, so Good sweet. morning, Chanel Parkway. <laughs> I'm so glad to see you today. So, yeah. So, when you say keeping on trucking on, like, we can talk about all the trucks, and like, sometimes the trucks will talk to her. And it's like a whole world of creatures that speak with her. That is adorable. I also have a car game that my daughter likes to play on our, we also have a 30 minute drive to her school, Mm. um, but she's much older than your daughter. And so this is the game. This tells you something about who I am as a person, (laughs) but you already know, you already know. I know, but I can't wait to hear this story. She finds random things in the car, whatever she can reach, and (laughs) rubs them on my arm while I'm driving. (laughs) I have to guess what it is. And I will tell you, Bobby, there is some weird stuff in my car. <laughs> I was going to say, like, how long can you possibly play this game before you run out of a stuff? A really long time. There is a lot of stuff in my car. What's one? Can you tell me one thing that she rubbed on your arm that you couldn't get? <laughs> that I couldn't get? Or that was, like, um, totally weird? Yeah, one time I had this, like, I guess someone had ordered a piece of jewelry from Etsy and it came in this little like it was like a little it looked like a glass test tube with a cork on top. Oh, yeah. And they opened this item in my car and then just threw the packaging on the floor (laughs) because it's a trash can. Why wouldn't you do that? Of course you do that. (laughs) So she got two a twofer out of that. She got the cork (laughs) because you're not expecting a cork. No, no. And also Um, the test tube. Yeah. It's cool and hard and smooth that's amazing your story is reminding me for some reason oh because you said your car is a trash can of our mentor john hayes of blessed memory did you ever (laughs) ride john hayes's car 
as as infrequently as possible. Because <laughs> uh, he would spit tobacco a lot, and so there's tobacco all over his car. But then the windows wouldn't roll down in the back seat. And so he took me to oh lunch gosh. one day, like in the middle of July in Georgia, <laughs> and I sit in the back seat of this car in the middle of all the tobacco uh, in like 95 degree heat. Ooh. It was, yeah, that was something else. Yes. Anyhow. So you roll down the window like an inch and try to stick your nose, stick your nose out there. Yeah. Oh, please. <gasps> <laughs> all right, Amy, I don't have a good segue from uh, yeah, tobacco I don't know spit, if I can get us from tobacco car. spitting cars to... Uh, to First Samuel, but we're, we'll just pivot. So today we're in First Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, and then a little bit of Psalm 51. So we have moved since last, last week we were at the story of the call of Samuel in First Samuel chapter 3. Mm-hmm. And now we're, this is the story of Samuel anointing King David, who is the second king. Yeah. Uh, in the official counting of of Israel, and so clearly <laughs> some things have happened uh, between First Samuel uh, chapter three and here. So, if you were going to give us the sort of quick version of what we need to know, what would you say? So here's my quick version: the first king that's anointed is named Saul, and he is portrayed as a somewhat unstable character. Mm-hmm. Um, although some of that instability hasn't shown up yet at this point in the story. What we know or what we need to know at this point in the story is that Saul has been leading them through a series of difficult, bloody battles. Mm -hmm. And in the course of that work, there have been two major missteps on his part. Yeah. One of them, um, there's a story where he's trying to keep the people motivated as they're facing these hard battles. And Samuel tells him to wait until he arrives, until Samuel arrives to offer this community sacrifice. But Samuel is late and the people start dissipating and Saul doesn't know what to do. So he just goes ahead and offers it at the wrong time. And Samuel tells him that because of this, the kingship will not continue in his lineage. Like this isn't going to be like a Davidic line kind of situation. Yeah. So that was one. And then another one that really just happened before we're going to pick up the story. There's a big battle with King Agag in the city of Amalek. And he has been, he, Saul, has been instructed to completely destroy everything there. Destroy it. Yeah. But Saul only destroys the things that, he does destroy stuff, but the stuff that's really valuable, he does not destroy. He saves the, you know, valuable herds and flocks. And when Samuel confronts him about this, because he can, like, hear the bleeding of the animals, like, Saul was, he didn't do a very good job covering his tracks here. (laughs) Yeah, moo. 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 (laughs) right. Hey, what's that sound? Uh. Um, (laughs) It's like playing hide and seek with my daughter. She's, like, hiding behind the chair, but she's giggling the whole time. (laughs) How did you find me, daddy? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. It's like that, but with cows. Yeah. So Saul claims that this was so that he could offer a really great sacrifice to God. Who knows whether that was really his intention or not, but regardless of whether that was intention, that was not what he was instructed to do. Yeah. And so from this point, Samuel tells Saul that the Lord has rejected him as king. Yeah. So Saul is still officially the king. And as far as all the people know, Saul is the king. Yeah. But. He has been told that he's been rejected. Saul pleads and he admits he did wrong and he shouldn't have done it. It doesn't matter. 
He's been rejected. So we're in this like awkward part of the story now where Saul is officially the king. As far as all the people know, Saul is the king. But Samuel and Saul know that God has rejected him. And so from this story forward, for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to end up with an official king. And then by the end of this story, we have an anointed king who is yet unofficial. And that tension sort of motivates the whole rest of this rest of this book. That first story you were talking about with the the sacrifice, Saul's actually like got his army and he's facing the Philistine army and they're supposed to sacrifice before they go into battle. So it's this like, you know, really tense scene. And he's like, I got to do something or I'm going to lose my army and we're going to yeah. get routed. Yeah. So I feel really bad for the guy. Like I maybe the too. second one, like, I don't know, like you kind of like the fact that he didn't exterminate an entire <laughs> army and all their people, like you, right? I, in some ways, Saul is doing the things he's got to do, or at least he thinks he's got to do. Maybe, and maybe that's the key: is he's yeah. doing the things he thinks he's got to do to keep his governance moving with the people, and he gets rejected because of that. Yeah, he's it. He, I, I feel for Saul too. I mean, he's doing. He is their military leader, and he's yeah. trying to navigate that. And the instructions he's receiving don't quite fit together with what appears to be the, the requirements of the situation, certainly in the first case. And I don't, yeah. I don't know about the second case, yeah. but yeah. No, that, that's an important, an important point. It's not just the community that dissipates. It's the community of his fighters. Yeah, <laughs> it's his army. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I don't remember if we've talked about that text or not, but the, that one where the second one where... Yeah, no, no, that one where the sacrifice doesn't happen. And then as soon as the sacrifice happens, Samuel pops out. I, that to me is an intriguing text because I'm like, come on, Samuel. Like, where is he like hiding behind a tree waiting? That's totally what I picture. He's hiding yeah. behind a tree. Ha ha, I caught you. <laughs> you didn't do it. Anyway, okay. So today we're in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and you set that up really nicely. So this is the moment where Saul has been rejected, but we don't have a replacement in place mm-hmm. yet. So this text is the text where the, that replacement is chosen. So I'm picking up in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, and I'm reading the NRSV. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So can you talk to me a little bit about Samuel's worry here? Like he's caught, we, we, we talked in the Genesis 22 episode about being kind of caught between two commitments. Mm-hmm. This is different than that. But mm-hmm. in a sense, Samuel, he's responsible to God and also he's got some responsibility or at least some, I don't know, relationship to the people. So uh, God tells him what to do, and he says, they're going to kill me, all right? So what do you do with this position that, that Samuel is in here? You know, in some ways, I feel like, I feel like a, a 
double layer tension in here. Like on the one hand, when God says go, Samuel says, if Saul hears about it, Saul's yeah. going to have me killed. And that yeah. that gave me pause. Like what? Samuel's not allowed to go to cities? Like what What were the expectations of of Samuel generally? And the only thing I could think well, in addition to like people really read a lot into everything you do when you're the prophet of God, is that this is the beginning of that sort of rupture that is going to keep widening and widening. And that I can't imagine that in the past, Samuel couldn't have gone down to Bethlehem to do whatever he was doing there. But yeah. maybe now Saul is, I was going to say paranoid, but it's not paranoia because it's real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know, maybe Saul wants sort of a tighter leash on him. Yeah. So there's some tension between, and there has been, you know, Samuel was the one who anointed Saul, but then Samuel's yeah. also the one who has been announcing their rejections. And so there's a real, a real tension there. I, I think that's probably right that Saul now is, a, is aware of what Samuel could be up to because he, he knows also that he's been rejected. Yeah. And so the, the prophet is in this, in this tense place. It seems to me like Samuel, is allowed to go to Bethlehem, but what he's worried about is if Saul figures out he's there to anoint a king. Yeah. And so they come up with this whole backstory, which is a really thin backstory because then he invites everybody <laughs> to the <laughs> he invites everybody to the sacrifice, and then like so this whole thing I think ends up being public, so everybody yeah. knows what happened anyway. But I don't know. It seems to satisfy Samuel in some way. Seems to yeah satisfy the the needs of the situation. So God's response is. Take a heifer and say, I'm coming to sacrifice to the Lord. And that's like your cover story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can see on my like, expression. I'm going to start using that as a blanket cover. Travel with a cow. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> I, keep I'm, a cow. I'm here to sacrifice. That's what's happening. Does this, so here we, on one level, this story is about political subterfuge, right? We're anointing a king yeah. in place of the legitimate king. On the other hand, this story is about using religious observance as a cover for political subterfuge with the blessing of God. Mm-hmm. That's a, there's a lot going on in there. Yeah, and it's and it's not even just with the blessing of God. It's like this is God's idea. That's right. You know? Yeah, no, that's and right. In your translation, your translation is slightly different from mine, but I liked yours. That that God's like, I have. What did he say? I've chosen a king for myself, or I have gotten myself a new king, or. Yeah, at the end of verse one, for I have provided for myself a king Mm. among Jesse's sons. Yeah. I have provided for myself a king. That's a really (laughs) funny turn of phrase. What is the JPS? Uh, I have, let's see. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have decided on one of his sons to be king. Yeah. You know, Amy, now that you're asking me, or not asking me, but we're talking about this, it's actually Kira'iti. Like I have seen mm, among I've his sons. Mm-hmm. And so the, that con- connection of seeing and providing goes back to the Genesis 22 story where that word it is does. used in the same way. I don't know that they're trying to connect, yeah. but like the yeah. idea of God. So what God literally says is, I've seen my guy among mm-hmm. Jesse's sons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but you were saying something about that. Oh, because you had asked the question about, you know, using religious ritual as a way to hide. <laughs> yeah. Had political uh, activity, underground political activity. And the the role of the king in this story is so, it is political, but it is also so tied in with God. Like it's, yeah, 
I don't know. It 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 feels really. I want to say it feels really different than the way that I think about politics now. Although maybe I need a reality check about the way that <laughs> the way the separation of uh, religious institutions in the state. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like this would be different if if Samuel suggested, "Why don't I pretend to sacrifice?" as opposed to God saying that he ought to. You know, that point is really interesting that you're making because, you know, one of the things that I had said just a minute ago was Saul did what needed to be done to maintain his governance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but actually what seems to be the case in this text is that God's the one who makes the decisions about governance. And so even if the decisions you're making are smart decisions about how to be yeah. a king in yeah. terms of the political realia, you're supposed to listen to God. Right. And when you connect... So like I'm like okay that makes sense in this text but when you connect that to modern day you're like you know like do yeah. the thing that God tells you to do not the thing that makes sense politically I'm like that goes down a bad yeah, path yeah that gets real I, quick. I totally agree yes if we're inside the world of this story that is how that is that yeah. is how that's playing out exact that's exactly right and I think that's that was the tension that God envisioned with having a king in the first place yeah that that's this right is what would happen but yeah if we if we start applying those lessons directly <laughs> yeah. to modern times, it gets it gets squirrely really quickly. Yeah. So if you go back to Deuteronomy 17 and, and even in 1 Samuel 8, where Samuel's talking about what the king is going to be like before there is a king, that concern is exactly there. The, the king is going to do the things that's, that's politically expedient, but what they really need to do is listen to God. Yeah. And in the world of this text, as you're saying, that's the crucial marker of a good king is that they listen to what God says. And yeah. what do you do with that in a you know, a democracy is less clear. Uh, so we, we, need, we need to be cautious about how we move that into the contemporary life. Yes, and yet, for sure, for sure. the fact that this is political and also the, like the merging of political and theological, I think is really instructive for us in, in some way or another in this, in this text. Now, I will confess to you that in my internal version of this story, Samuel goes to Jesse's house and the sons sort of in private come in front of Samuel which we'll see in the next in the next bit, which makes sense in terms of this concern about being publicly known that you're anointing a king. But what it seems like is actually happening here is Jesse and his sons come to the sacrifice where everyone else also is. I will confess that I I have a I have trouble staging this in my mind, and yeah. I have questions about what people understand about what is happening. Yeah. Like, what does Jesse understand about this? What do other people watching understand about it? Yeah. Because in my head, it is still all, like, pretty much under the table. That basically, like, God has seen this person and needs this physical ritual of anointing to occur Mm -hmm. to sort of seal the deal. But that it's still happening in, like, public secret, you know? Yeah. Let's keep that question out there because I think it's an interesting one and I don't quite know. So your way of framing it is public secret. So it's all happening in front of people, but they don't really realize what's happening. they don't understand what it is. And I think that's one way of reading the text. Another way of reading the text is that all that really matters is what Saul thinks is happening. Mm -hmm. And so now what you've done is you've given people an excuse, right? You've given them their Mm -hmm. cover story. So everybody knows exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. But if Saul comes to town and says, how, how dare you? Then the people can say, oh, no, it was just a sacrifice. And they're not lying. So interesting. So in that way, it's like a public secret yeah. instead of a secret in public. 
Yeah, so yeah. But I'm intrigued by which of these. By um, which of these, yeah, and what it, what it's like to read it in those two different ways. Yeah. The other question that I have, and I, you know, this might be something for later in the text, is, you know, here we see the role of profit is just squarely in the middle of complicated politics. So this, any of these ideas about like religion is sort of separate from the political sphere, like that is not what's happening in this text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have any sort of thoughts about, and you know, maybe this comes later too, but any thoughts about like the, that prophetic connection that, that is both religious and political and like the position of a prophet either in this text or, or in ancient Israel? Wow, that's a really big question. <laughs> I know, I heard it. I was like, <laughs> oh, that's like an exam question for- No, uh, well, no, well, I mean, because I, you know, I started as you were talking, thinking about, thinking about it now and thinking about the relationship between what we would consider politics and what we would consider religious commitments and, you know, religious life. And then you added at the end, like, in ancient Israel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. So- well, you could talk about it in modern times too, yeah. Well, I mean, we could- Maybe we'll just save the conversation about modern times for later. But there, there was no imagining that that there was a separation uh, between prophecy or the you know religious life of the community and politics in ancient Israel. Yeah. Like yeah. it was, you know, if if it makes us any more comfortable as modern folks to say instead of like God told the prophet what to do is sort of just like you know that feeling when you know what's right, you know that this is the right thing, and so you go to bat hard for it and you call yeah. that feeling god that happens all over the place today yeah it's just we don't necessarily recognize singular prophets the way that that maybe happened in israel but that yeah prophets there were some who were sort of inside the court you know and and had the ear of the king like clearly samuel and saul have that kind of relationship and there were some who were outside the court and would critique heavily sort of the the workings of political life like the you know, like, I don't know, Amos and, yeah, you know. Elijah, yeah. Elijah, yeah, yeah. So the word prophecy itself, I feel like, covers a big range of where people fit within society. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's super helpful. And I also think almost all the time, prophets have a political function. They are mm-hmm. sort of the connection point of the political and the religious. And so they're often paired with kings. As you're saying, sometimes with great tension and sometimes mm-hmm. with great trust, but they're always right in the middle of the political world. And mm-hmm. here, Samuel is is no different. What that says for us and our function, you know, as religious people, and there's there's other ways of being religious besides being prophet. But like any notion, I think you were saying in this text, and I think also in the world, that religion and politics are totally separated, seems not not in keeping with the way that, at least the way the Hebrew Bible in general in this story in particular, think about it. Yeah. Is there anything else we should say about this little setup for the story? I think the only thing I want to notice is sort of pulling on our conversation from last time about Samuel and the way that he has to deliver this really difficult message to someone that he cares about. And he does it. Yeah. Sort of what it's like to be pulled in those those two directions. I just feel struck by the fact that this story starts with like, even though Samuel just delivered this message to Saul, he's grieving. Like he's grieving over what is happening with Saul, and God yeah. is sort of like, get over it. <laughs> yeah. And Samuel does what he has to do. Like he does the things that God asks him to do, and he 
enforces the things that God asks him to enforce or relays that they will be enforced. But I just, I don't know, I really, I feel that he still feels the the human ties and the human connections with all these folks that he's been working really closely with. That is so helpful because I just skipped right over that word grief. Like, I don't know what to do with this. And so, because I think of, you know, Samuel didn't want there to be a king. Samuel has been in tense relationship with Saul this whole time. And so in my head, I've sort of transposed Samuel to being kind of anti-Saul. But he's not. You're, you're exactly right. I mean, he might, he might realize this is what needs it to happen. It might be all of that. Yeah. But like yeah. He, f- he feels some grief over the fact that this didn't, this yeah, didn't work out. It, it didn't go well. Yeah. So there's not the sort of like, ha ha, I told you so. But the, that's really interesting. Yeah, he's not relieved. I don't quite prophet. know what to do with that, but I but I, I don't think either. that's an it's hard to be important a observation. That's yeah. All I got. <laughs> yeah. And announcing sort of God's decisions about things is not and the, I, and you're exactly right connecting with last week's story. Like this has been part of Samuel's career from the very beginning mm-hmm. is saying hard things to people that he would rather not have to say them to causing mm-hmm. him grief. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we are now at the sacrifice and Samuel has invited all of the people, seems like, of Bethlehem, and then Jesse and his sons specifically are named who have come to the sacrifice. So pick up in verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliav and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. So this is probably not a good question, but here's my question. Yeah. Oftentimes in the Hebrew Bible, the narrative is very sparse. So... Big things happen in very short amounts of narrative space. Yeah. Here, a very little thing (laughs) happens, right? There are seven people who are rejected as king. Like, I just said that in half a sentence. Our text lingers over that and names three of them and then announces four of them. We have the repeated action of them coming and being rejected. Why do you think the text spends so much time on this idea of rejection. I mean, so I, I, I love that it does because it's making me picture what's happening here, yeah. which in my mind is like a sort of bizarro, like project runway. <laughs> like, <laughs> the sun walks down and like, nope. Yep. It's very, it's very dramatic. Like it really adds to, adds to the tension. God says that God has seen the next king. Who's yeah. it going to be? Like it's yeah. like very, you know. Game show, reality TV. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. I think everything is reality TV, though. Yeah. But I am unclear in my staging of Project Runway, the King version, when, okay, when it keeps saying, uh, has whoever it was passed before Samuel, but he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Mm-hmm. Do you read that as Samuel says this aloud? Or God is 
God is saying it to Samuel or Samuel is saying it to himself. I'm still trying to figure out what what Jesse and his sons think is happening. Yeah, it's so interesting when you ask it that way, because like in, in the beginning, it doesn't seem like really anything like the, it, it's not clear that there's like a sachet down the runway. But by the time you get to say right. verse nine, Jesse made. So they called then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Jesse made Shama pass by. And so and it seems like in my head, Samuel is saying to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen this one. Yeah. The first one, Eliab comes and God gives a little speech about appearance. And then Samuel says to Jesse, nope, not that one. Send the next one. The next one comes. Samuel says, the Lord has not picked that one. Send the next one. And so there, there's a conversation between Samuel and Jesse to, in yeah. which the Lord is the decision maker, but the Lord has kind of faded into the background. Yeah. Is that, is that how you read it? I really don't know how to read it. I mean, that's the my translation has the the speaker, the male speaker of these sentences as a lowercase h. So I think my translation is is reading it as you are. Yeah. I guess I just like the the last thing that Samuel said to Jesse about this was that they were coming to a sacrificial feast. So if that's he starts right. saying the Lord hasn't chosen that one, <laughs> yeah. What? Like there's a there's an important piece of that missing unless as you were saying earlier your theory that like everyone knows what's going on they're just not talking about it unless Jesse already understands that he is there to anoint another king. But that would be a really big that seems like a big leap. Yeah, I mean and you're right it has not been said. I I guess the sort of in this sort of secret in public reading, I guess one question that I will have is what do they think's happening at the end when right. Samuel anoints them in front of his brothers? Yeah. If they haven't known what's going on this whole time. And so I yeah. think reading backwards from there, I tend to think like everybody who's there they must have known. Kind of knows what's happening. But I but I w- will r- remind us that I always have thought this was just happening at Jesse's house and so the only ones there were Jesse's family. So they all know. But in fact, it seems to be that everyone in Bethlehem was invited to this, and they're all kind of seeing it happen. I think I get thrown off a little bit because the way the whole thing starts is sort of this internal conversation that Samuel and God are having, you know, Mm -hmm. that Samuel thinks to himself, oh, this, not just that this must be the guy, but surely the Lord's anointed stands before him, stands before the Lord. That's how my translation is. And then, you know, God responds. But yeah, then then maybe the conversation after that continues with Jesse directly. I don't know how to stage this thing. And so yeah, maybe, maybe let's just put that question off again yeah, yeah. <laughs> and see if Fair it makes enough. sense at the end. I don't know. Hi, I'm Terry Peterson, minister of St. John's Church of Scotland in Gurich, west of Glasgow on the Scottish coast. And I am the liturgy writer for Bible Worm which means I get to spend a lot of time listening to Bobby and Amy, and that is a great joy. It is fascinating to hear them read and talk through stories I thought I knew pretty well since I'm starting my third time through the narrative lectionary now. I always come away with more ideas than I can fit into a liturgy or a sermon, and working with them has deepened my own spiritual life as I write liturgy that follows the contours of their conversations. I appreciate that they don't shy away from the difficult parts. 
and that they always find connections between these ancient texts and our contemporary life. And it's fun for me to work those connections into liturgy that empowers worshiping communities to speak to and about God in new ways. If you join the Bible Worm Patreon at the Liturgy Worm level or higher, you'll have access to those liturgies and prayers that you can use or adapt, as well as early access to the podcast. Or there are other levels with different benefits, including Bible studies, access to the Bible Worm Collaborative Discussion Group, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this incredible resource for people of faith around the world. And now, back to this week's podcast. So you said that you like that the rejection is narrated. Can you just talk a little bit about the, the significant, like he starts with the oldest and he works through to the youngest. And seven times in this part that we've read, there's a rejection. Why does it matter? Do you, like, why do you like that that's narrated? What does it matter that that's narrated? I think it, well, in addition to just sort of adding to the drama because more time is passing. Yeah. And it, it, it sort of underscores this, you know, theme of the the unexpected one being chosen. Like it's like, you know, Cinderella's yeah. sisters coming down first to try on the shoe and like, yeah. do you have any other people in here? But it also, not that I thought God was going to be approximate in God's choice, but <laughs> it, like it re- God really saw someone very, sp- has someone very specific yeah. in mind. Yeah. And so I feel like going through all the rejection underscores that there is someone very specific and we're just going to wait as long as it takes till that person <laughs> shows up here. There are no, no shortcuts. No, I think that's right. I think that's really important. And it's interesting that it's, I guess it's Samuel or Jesse who are the one who, ones who decide to start at the oldest and move to the youngest. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of highlighting this cultural expectation that Samuel has brought with him or that Jesse has, that the oldest son is the most important son. God has seen someone specific who is going to be the youngest son. So it's subverting the social expectation, but not just saying that, <laughs> but sort yeah. of saying like, y'all have to go through this exercise of me repeatedly rejecting your assumption until we get to the very and get to the very end mm-hmm. which comes back to the a theme that we saw a few weeks ago in the Jacob and Esau story with yes. Isaac of the privileging of the youngest and this is as as you know uh, one of the sort of motifs of the Hebrew Bible that's repeatedly emphasized as the selection mm-hmm. of, of the youngest mm-hmm. rather than the oldest mm-hmm now, when God rejects the first son, Eliav, God says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or on his stature. I rejected him because the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There's a lot going on right there about the way in which God is not like us. What do you unpack when you unpack that verse? Like what seems important to you? I just love the way that you framed that question. Because I, I mean, I'll admit I had been a little bit hung up on the fact that when we meet David, the text is basically like, he was cute. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, didn't you just say it doesn't matter? Yeah. Anyway, you know, we, we've just been having all these conversations in my community about, about how we feel about the metaphor of king as it's used for God. Yeah. 
and in what ways it is helpful and in what ways it is harmful or at least not helpful or limiting. And part of what we keep circling back to is is sort of precisely what you're what you're saying in some ways. Like when we say king, we're picturing like a human king and the limitations of a human being elevated into the role of kingship and the hot mess that can happen in that situation. Whereas when we say God is king, it's just a, it's really hard to let go of those, those images of, of human kings. And I feel like that's part of what this verse is trying to get us to start to do. You know, like the king doesn't just have to be the most powerful warrior or doesn't have to, you know, and it's not like David's not going to have plenty of battles to wage on his own. Like he will, but whatever their sort of stereotype is of this is what power looks like and this is what a king should be like, God is very clearly saying like, no, like this is how you guys keep getting yourselves into trouble. Yeah. Although here it's really, you know, it's in some ways a really simple comment just about like, you don't have to choose the tallest guy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. What, what is, what does all that evoke for you? Yeah. And I, I, I love everything that you just said. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, in some ways, the where you just ended sort of exposes the ridiculousness of the way that Samuel was going about thinking which one was the right one. It was like, he's a tall dude and he's older than other people, right? And so I think there is something that here that's kind of a, a little bit of a an undercutting of the simplicity by which human beings often ascribe power. I like mm-hmm. that. I love what you're saying about power need not reside in certain kinds of bodies or certain kinds of uh, social privileges. And so when we go to the eighth son, we're saying something there about that, like mm-hmm. oldest, older bodies, taller bodies, these things, these things don't matter. One would like for this text to go further because we just end up with like a young man, <laughs> right? right? But right. you can extrapolate this text a little bit, and I think, yeah. and say like, all the ways in which we ascribe certain kinds of power or even just certain kinds of characteristics to certain kinds of bodies, like that's very simplistic and God doesn't work like that. God sees mm-hmm. what really is inside of a person. Like, I think there's really a beautiful, beautiful opening. If we go a little further than the author of First Samuel was willing to go, mm-hmm. there's a really beautiful opening there for thinking about love that. where power resides. Yes, yes, yes. I love that. I love that. We're going to have to come back and trouble that in a minute, as you, <laughs> as you were noticing. But, but let's leave that for, for what it yeah, is yeah. for right now. Anything else you want to say about this little section of text? I don't think so. I think we've covered the, the things that were on my mind. This just occurred to me as I was asking you. But seven is a really nice biblical number. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like when we look at the seven that we are at the number of completion. Mm-hmm. And so mm. this moment in this text sort of feels like we tried everything and there's nothing left to try. So there's like this mini moment. I mean, and it's gone in a heartbeat, but there's this mini moment of we went through this whole thing and we narrated three days of it and we described the other or three people of it and we yeah. described the others. And there's this moment of like hopelessness, right? And then here comes the eighth, the eighth thing that's beyond the completion that's going to turn out to be the one. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I love that. And I feel like that fits in with this sort of general, you know, the the way we were observing before that they're really building 
narrative tension here. Yeah. You know, they're making this take a long time. They're going through all the steps. And yeah, it does seem like it reaches completion and there was nobody. But yet. And especially if you think of this as a text that would have been encountered largely orally. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this, in the storytelling of this, there really is a kind of dramatic moment right there. Yeah. Okay, picking up in verse 11. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. My translation at that very end part is the spirit of the Lord gripped David from that day on. Oh, I love that. So like, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Why do, can you say like, I can imagine why you love that, but can you say a little more about why? I mean, to be gripped by something is like, I don't know. It just, it, it seems so David like in some ways, like David is so like, he's a little crazy in some of his behaviors, but he is so like, there's this like all encompassing like power of his connection to God. That's like, that's always there. He's got this like, I'm going to say ruach in Hebrew, this like spirit. And to be gripped by something is like, you can't look away. Like you can't put it down. You can't, you are, you are compelled by it. And he was compelled by it from that day forward is, uh, that's a pretty powerful statement. That it is. Yeah. I love that. And you know, it also is, it's not exactly the case that there was this holy boy out in the field, you know, this powerful boy, but he had some potential. Yeah. For whatever reason. And then the spirit gripped him is what makes that boy David. Yes. So it's not the Davidness of David. It's the spirit. Yeah. And I've, I mean, I will say I found that surprising and striking also that it's, yeah, there there must have been something about him that caused God to choose him, some kind of inherent capacity or potential for that kind of connection or, or openness to being gripped in that way. Yeah. But- it wasn't that he was just found in that in the state that he wound up in, you know, it's like had to be actualized. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, that, that sense of like spiritual transformation or like, you know, the base coming in, (laughs) the baseline coming in when he's anointed is, it's really, really powerful. Yeah. So if, if you go back to what God had said to Samuel previously, God doesn't look on his stature, but looks upon the heart. Mm-hmm. then the appearance of David aside for the moment, yeah. it seems like the reason God has selected David is because of something about his heart. Yeah. But then the reason is not actually given anywhere in the text. That's right. Do you try to think about like, what was it about David's heart that God saw? Or is that something better left open? God, I bet the rabbis have said such interesting things about that question. I I mean, I don't have a great answer to it. I feel like the first thing that comes to my mind is that is, is like softness, 
yeah or like openness to to being compelled by by something as kind of amorphous and confusing as god yeah i love that and especially if you start back with like what well what was the problem with saul right the problem with saul was he was making strategic political decisions and not letting himself yes. be gripped by god yes he was making good human king decisions yeah. for the most part but so that's what we not really what want wanted. is a wide open religious zealot <laughs> who <laughs> what could do, go wrong <laughs> go on with the zero and i mean as you know it does go horribly horribly wrong eventually yeah anyway but that's not that's a story for that's not that, today's reading that's a story no. for another day <laughs> so the only things we know about David initially are that he's the youngest, he's out in the field, and he's a shepherd. Those are the details mm-hmm. that we're given when we're sort of first introduced to him. Are you surprised that Jesse just like forgot that he had another son? <laughs> I mean, he didn't like forget, but but Samuel has said pretty clearly, like, bring all your yeah. sons. And he was like, oh, that one? Like, he's like the runt of the litter. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a great way of asking that question. And yeah, it is, it is almost like he's such an afterthought. That Jesse was never going to think of him. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't even count him among among his sons. I mean, that's another way of thinking about this question of, like, who does the Lord look on? And so here, here you have the one who is outside the counting. Mm. Uh, not just the mm-hmm. eighth one, but also the one whose father forgets about him <laughs> for this for this momentous occasion. And so, you know, maybe there's something there about God engaging the ones who are not only the youngest, not only the smallest, but also the ones who are accounted for nothing mm-hmm. by the people who are doing the counting. Do you make anything of the fact that he's a shepherd? Is that coincidental detail or is that important? I, I mean, I I think it's important though. I'm not, I could see a couple different ways in which it could be important. So one way is like, I wonder, is calling someone a shepherd just sort of like, is that just sort of like a commoner's job? Like, he's a trucker, he's a, mm-hmm. he's a, you know, works at a convenience store. Like, I, I don't know, like a job that no one's going to be like, oh, wow, this, you know, has such a powerful profession or whatever. So, so that's your sort of one possibility. But the other one, for me, again, really goes back to that pressing against what are the characteristics that you think you need in a king. Yeah. And, you know, a shepherd is is caring for living creatures, guiding yeah. them, doing work that is not... <laughs> no one's really watching and saying like, hey, what a good job you did right there getting that sheep. Like if you yeah. want a lot of affirmation of your talents, yeah. I don't think shepherding is probably a great career path Yeah, for you. <laughs> or, or maybe, I don't know, maybe it's some combination of those yeah. things, but. I love all of that. And I, you know, I kind of probably come out as some combination of those things. Like the shepherding maybe is the job that the kids who are not old enough to be soldiers yet, as it turns out, mm. the other brothers are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the ones who get to keep, take care of the sheep. So it's like the little kid's job. Mm-hmm. How old do you think David is? Uh, is he well, he's probably not a little kid. I would, I would think of him as like 10 or 11 maybe. That's still pretty little. I don't have okay. any great basis for that. I'm sure continue, it's, continue. I'm no, sure I, somewhere I, in the biblical text it says how old David was at some point that we could extrapolate, but I don't yeah. have that. Yeah. It doesn't matter. But I love what you're saying about there are things about shepherding 
And I, you know, I was thinking about other things like part of the job of a shepherd is to get, get the sheep to go where they really need to go, not where they really want to go. Cause mm-hmm. sheep are notoriously not very good at making wise choices for themselves. And so right. maybe there's something about, I love, I love where you're headed there. There's something about the way that a shepherd shepherds that is more yeah. kingly than the way that a soldier soldiers. Although David's going to turn out to be a soldier as well. Yeah. You also, of course, hear, you know, the Lord is my shepherd and, you know, these ideas that God also is compared in this way. There's, there's something about that metaphor yes, for the way God can be and also the way that a king can be. That, that seems really important. Yes. Yes, for sure. Now you've uh, pointed a couple of times to this. I mean, this verse makes me laugh so much in the context it's of this story funny. where God has just said, I don't care what people look like. I care what their hearts are like. And then the, it's the narrator who tells us. Mm-hmm. So it's the narrator who says that he's ready, he has beautiful eyes, and he's handsome. And so the mm-hmm. narrator <laughs> is also interested in David's outward appearance anyway. Well, what do you do with that? We just said don't pay attention to the outward appearance and now that now the story is like he was oh the guy was a hottie. <laughs> I mean I laugh at it mostly. It I mean I feel like it's one of these things where try as we might as humans to not pay attention to these things, we cannot help ourselves. We do yeah. we pay attention to these things. Yeah. Even if we you know, even if we know, we know we shouldn't, or we know it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I mostly chuckle at it. I think it's very funny. So you're sort of reading that as the narrator didn't really take God's point exactly. That, that God just said, "Don't pay attention," and the narrator's like, "He was so good looking." Like that, even the narrator of this text kind of slips back. I guess so. I, I mean, I mean, you can notice that someone's good looking without it being the reason that you chose them to be king. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other way I think of ta- another way of taking this text is like, yeah, it is very possible to be good looking and also have a wonderful heart. And that seems to be the case with yeah. David. Yeah. So we don't need to discount people because they are good looking or whatever. Right. But that's not the thing that actually matters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Okay. So the end of this story, then Samuel has anointed David in front of his brothers, it says. So it's not clear that the rest of the community is there. I don't know where they went, but anointed in the presence of his brothers. And then the spirits with David. So by the end, we have two kings now, the official king and the anointed king who has God's spirit. And I don't know. We've talked about this a little bit, like who knows what and like what is the significance. But any reflections on when we get to the end of the story going forward? Who is aware or why does it matter? Oh, I think it matters a lot. Yeah. But I don't know who knows. How, I mean, how common do you think it was to be anointed? Like, would someone ever just get anointed because they, you know, like, anointing didn't necessarily mean you are the new king. People anointed people in the ancient world. Yeah. Is there, do you think there's a possibility that this was just, that this could have been seen as just an honoring? Yeah. Or not? I mean, I don't, it is Samuel doing it. It's not like some random person. Here's my new reading. Here's my new theory of what this text is doing. It's like you've gone to a festival concert, right? It's like widespread panic <laughs> is playing a show in the mid nineties and everybody's just out there in a field, you know, twirling and doing their thing. And 
David, sorry, and Jesse and his sons are there and Samuel is there and they're doing this thing and everyone's around, but nobody's paying any attention. Nobody's paying attention. Because they're at a festival. Mm -hmm. And so this is like, it's public, but it's not public in a way that anyone actually notices. That's my new reading of this text. I like it. I like that. I like that. And then you unfold something out of there about like, there can be really dramatic things that God is doing like right in front of your face and you might not know it because you're jamming out to widespread panic. I don't know why widespread panic is my go-to. I don't know why either, but it's, but being in a crowd right now (laughs) would cause me to panic. So yeah, it would be widespread. Very well. Yeah. And also to further complicate that, the gathering that they're at is ostensibly the main act is a sacrifice yeah. to God. So like they they maybe are it's not that they're distracted necessarily, like they think they are participating in yeah. the religious ritual that is drawing them all together. And in fact, there's oh. a much bigger religious ritual happening over to the side. Mind the- blown. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> wow, that feels like so right that I can't believe I never saw that before. But I I love that. They have been distracted by what they think is the religious thing and that what God is actually doing is taking place right in front of them and they don't know it. Yes, and it was God's idea. Distract them by making them think they are worshiping me over there when actually I'm over here. Yeah. That's very, (laughs) that's complicated. That is complicated, but yeah, I love it. I don't know what I'm going to say in in a minute when we have to say things. (laughs) But before we have to say things, we have a text in Psalm 51, which is also given to us in the narrative lectionary. So the text is Psalm 51, verses 10 to 14. Mm-hmm. The very beginning, in the NRSV, in the English translation, it's a pre, like a prescript to the psalm. It might be verse 1 in, in Hebrew. But it says, To the leader, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. So in the biblical text itself, this psalm has a very clear attribution to the life of David, but it's at a very different moment in his life yes. after he has just committed a sexual assault against another man's wife, which is, you know, leads to what ultimately is the, the downfall of his reign. <laughs> so it's a very different from yeah. the like, this is kind of sweet boy who just got anointed. Anyway. Yeah. But before we talk about that, let's, let's read the text. So Psalm 51, 10 to 14. Create in me, so in the setting of the psalm anyway, this is David speaking. Mm-hmm. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me in a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. So the first thing that I wrote down, oh, sorry, is there something different? I just was going to say that the verse numbering is different in the Oh, uh, you're off by but a I, verse. But I assume that you are, I assume that the verses you read are the ones they meant. Yeah. Is it just off yeah. by one verse? Mine starts with, let let me hear tidings of joy and gladness. Fashioning a pure heart doesn't come for two more verses. Oh, interesting. It must be in the Hebrew that those first that first prescript takes actually two yeah, verses. Yeah, the prescript t- is verse one. Yeah. In any case. So the first thing I wrote down after this text in my notes is, I'm struggling with the connection between this psalm and what we just read in 1 Samuel 16, which is probably not the most profound thing that one 
I could say. But it's actually where I want to start is to say, I mean, this is an interesting kind of Midrashic rabbinic thing to do is to take two texts that do not have any obvious connection and to figure out how they can be connected. Yeah. What, where did you start unpacking a connection? Well, so I don't know if, okay. So when, when I was looking at the text and starting one verse earlier, if you started one verse earlier, it, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Yeah. It does, it gives that framing that you gave in the, you know, of sort of the introduction to this whole Psalm of, of when all of this is happening. And, and that's been important to how I think about it, which, which almost yeah. makes me think more about the downfall of Saul. Yeah. And the awareness that David is also going to, transgress yeah and then what it what it means to sort of serve god in that like you're god's number one as the king (laughs) yeah and to be aware of your transgressions as the number one and i don't know for me it, it offers it offered this bridge between saul and david yeah but I don't know if that still works if you take away the verse that <laughs> that explicitly mentions sin. Yeah, because then, you know, this verse, I will teach transgressors your ways that sinners yeah. may return to you. For me, the, the beauty of that verse is I am a sinner. And so I will teach, like, I've got street cred. Yeah. You know, like, I because I have walked that road, I can That's exactly bring, right. bring people on that road back. But if you take it out of the context of having committed any sin in the first place, yeah. then it feels kind of vanilla to me. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're doing is right. I, I like, I, I, lo- I love that. To me, if you start where I started in the NRSV verse 10, it's created me a clean heart, oh God. Like the, the, and maybe I just, you know, maybe I'm just reading the previous part of the psalm into this, but the only reason you would say create a clean heart is because you are aware that your heart is not clean. And so sort of implied in there is already that my heart has been clouded by transgression. And so I need, I need a replacement part. And so even if you don't back up to where you backed up, I think your interpretation still works. And I love what you did with that. To me, one of the connections, like God looks on the heart, is where we started in 1 Samuel 16. And then mm-hmm. this passage starts with mm. the heart. And it's nice. exactly David saying, give me a clean heart, where yeah. we just said the Lord looks on the heart. And so if the Lord looks on the heart and David's heart is not clean, like what do we even do with that? And and I and that's so why I love where you kind of came out, which is God is not looking necessarily for the one who is pure of heart or the one who is completely without sin, because you know, right. in there's not one. All the yeah. testaments, the only one who is sinless in in my tradition anyway mm-hmm. is Jesus, and it's not possible for anyone else. It's not possible for you and me. And so then something about what was it about David? could become read through this psalm, David is aware enough of his own heart that he is able to ask God for a clean heart. Like he, he recognizes where he has gone wrong and that he is in need of mm-hmm. a heart replacement. And then he can, he can speak to other people who have also gone astray because he knows what that's like. I love that bit you added. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that a lot. And I think 
I think picking up on that resonance of God looks at the heart and this psalm starting exactly there is lovely. I think that's beautiful. The other thing that I notice here with like this part of this psalm is almost all imperatives to God, right? Creating me a clean heart, put a new spirit, don't cast me away, don't take your spirit away, restore me, sustain me. Those first three verses there. And so this is not about, I think I have it in my own capacity to do better. Mm -hmm. This is, I can't do any better unless you make it better. And so there's Mm -hmm. almost a demanding here or a like, God must be involved in this process. It reminded me a lot of Ezekiel 36, where God says, I'm going to put a new heart in you and and give you a spirit of, or a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Yeah. That this is kind of theme in the biblical text where, where God actually can and does recreate people, recreate nations, recreate communities in the way God wants them to be. But we don't have to do that work ourselves but we can mm-hmm. ask or even tell in this case, God, that that's what we need. And, and maybe therein lies the capacity for, for leadership. That's beautiful. I love it. Okay. I think that's what we can say about song. <laughs> I think so too. I mean, all the other stuff I wrote down was for the verses that were not actually part of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. Well, I feel like, Maybe I've already sort of, sort of unfolded what I think this text might mean for us today and what I just Let's hear it. Unfold said. it all the way. No, I just did it. I just did it. Psalm right. 51. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll come up with some other things as we go, but also maybe, maybe that was it. But uh, I will invite you, uh, as you reflect on what this passage might say to people like us, like our communities in, in contemporary times, what can we take away from this passage, do you think? Now I'm tricked because, so dear listeners, you may not know that, well, I think Bobby sometimes decides beforehand what he's going to say in these last words. I never do. I always wait and see what's going to- Oh, I do it because I thought you did it. You're so what, brilliant if you just happen. say that stuff off the top of your head. My goodness. <laughs> I know. I don't have any ideas until we talk about it. So it's always like this like little you know, game of like, whoever's going first, what are they going to say? And then I have to think of something different to say than that. So I thought you were going to talk about the like, you thought you were here to worship God in this way, but really God is in the back doing this other thing. Yeah. I like that too. Yeah. I could totally do that too. But what's, what's on my mind right now is this, a piute, which is a, a liturgical poem that I've been studying that is in the Yom Kippur liturgy. And you know, a lot of the language in in ancient liturgies and Jewish ancient liturgies and and other ones is very not just sort of oriented towards like masculine pronouns and whatnot, but also very has sort of traditional patriarchal ideas of how society should work and how authority works and how God works and what is our relationship to God and and all of that stuff. But in this piute. Instead of talking about God as king or God as, you know, ruler or it's sort of that that kind of power structure, it says we are clay in the hand of the potter. Mm. And it goes through all these different metaphors of like basically artisans. You know, we are God is the weaver and we are the <laughs> textiles. I'm sure it uses a better word than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so I was so I was discussing with a, a group of folks from my shul a couple of weeks ago, how we relate to this, this pute in particular. And we were talking about these 
moments in our lives, often related to caregiving of some kind, whether it's like professional or personal or for the for someone who is ill or a child or an elder or whatever kind of caregiving, that moment when you are called to respond to a crisis that you for real have no idea how to respond to. And yeah. sometimes you don't even know what you're walking into. Like someone has told you this person's in crisis and you need to come. And sort of what goes through you in the time between when you leave your office or your home or wherever and when you get to that person. And we were talking about how they're, you know, often when we're younger, at least I'll speak personally, you try to come up with a plan. Like you try to say, like, here's what I'm going to do when I get to this person, even though I don't totally know what I'm going to find when I get there. Yeah. And that for many of us over the course of our life, we sort of come much more to this almost meditation during that time of like, may I be clay in the hand of the potter? Mm. Like, I don't know what is going to be there. And Mm. And I guess that's how I'm thinking about, you know, thinking about what it, what was it about David that made David right for king, whereas Saul wasn't right. And it's almost yeah. like Saul had this script in his head of like, this is what a king does. I've seen kings. I know how to do king. You know, at least here are the goals. <laughs> here are the yeah. goals. Like, here's roughly what it should look like. And I feel like what these texts are telling us is that David is is not coming into it with that. And he does adopt some of it later. Like, it's hard to keep that stuff totally out. But but there's there's sense that he is he is able to be clay in the hand of the potter in a way that Samuel wasn't. And and that's really what God wants. I really love that. And sort of reading that in light of the the seven rejected sons and kind of the expectations of like other people also have expectations yeah. of what a king should be and God has rejected all of that. Reading that with the psalm and the creation of a clean heart and the willingness to be transformed. I love all of that. Yeah. I will say that I also love the thing that you thought I was going to love, which sort of occurred mid-conversation in a way that I am not yet 100% sure what to do with. Yeah. But I do think there is something to this idea that just because you are at a religious ceremony does not mean that you understand what is happening or what God is really up to. And religious ceremonies in and of themselves can be nice theater. Mm Mm-hmm that at the end of the day, you're missing the whole point. And so paying attention to what's happening sort of a, around you and like where is the spirit of God actually alive and moving and active in this moment, I think, that, I think that's really important. And also it is in the context of worship that God is doing this other thing, right? Yes, yes. Uh, but you've got to know what you're doing. You've got you to really be tuned into the spirit to really get the the good stuff yeah in a sense of what of what god is up to and so maybe i don't i mean i don't quite know what that is like maybe we ought to be careful about getting too comfortable with our religious ceremonies maybe we ought to be more willing to critique the kind of connection between the appearance of religious ceremony and the protection of power and that we as communities need to really be not so enthralled with uh, going through the motions of, of religion, but, but really with the discernment of the spirit and, and, and where is it catching? Where is it taking yeah. hold? And, and among 
home. I really love that. And, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking of all of the moments that I have had at synagogue while services were going on, but I was not in them. Mm. <laughs> or, you know, I, I was doing I was doing something else in the building. These like truly transformative conversations or interactions that I have had with people that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't come for the service. Yeah. But I also wouldn't have had if I was so dead set on sitting in the sanctuary for the entire duration and shushing everybody around me, you know, that, yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. There are, there are other things happening in the context of our community gatherings that are, that are worth investing with real spiritual meaning and possibility. Yeah. I love that. Well, Amy, next week we're moving on to First Kings, part of chapter five and then part of chapter eight, which kind of bracket Solomon's building and dedicating of the temple. So there ought to be some really interesting things to dig into there about the relationship of religion and power or something. Yeah, I don't know. For sure. And we skipped over David's whole reign. <laughs> that yeah. was it. You're a cute yeah. kid, David. See you yeah. next time. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. That's okay. That's good. We'll meet Solomon next time. <laughs> but David, we got him anointed. Like, yada, yada. We got him anointed. That's here good. Comes, here comes yeah. Solomon. That's good. All right, Amy. Good conversation today. I appreciate it. Good I'll talking see you next time. with you. I'll talk to you next time. Bye. for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us to keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporters, Jennifer Gingris, Ann Bassett, Kristen Pike, and Jacob Topper. Join us next week when we'll be discussing 1 Kings 5, 1-5, and 8, 1-13, the story of Solomon dedicating the temple. Until then, keep on digging.